0: And uh, this evening we're coming back to our study of Joel's prophecy. And uh, here in the prophecy of Joel, where we are, we are going to go over uh, the instructions that Joel provided in light of the catastrophe that had fallen upon the kingdom of Judah. And we are going to see the interpretation of that catastrophe. Is this on here? I you just hold it down and then the blue lights will come on. Um, Good. They're they're on, yeah. Okay. okay, thank you. Maybe I turned it off now, I don't know. Okay. Okay, so we're going to see the instructions that Joel provided in light of uh, the catastrophe that we looked at last time and um, the interpretation of the destruction before the children of Israel. You might remember, again, last time, uh, in the first seven verses of uh, chapter One of Joel. Uh, the Prophet did two things here. On the one hand, he begins by claiming that what he 's saying is the Word of the Living God that what he has is a divine message from heaven, and after he says that, he then goes on to describe the devi- the devastating invasion of the locust that had come. Onto the land of Judah that had swept over it. And he characterized that as something that had, uh, was, was not just a one-time uh, occurrence... ...but rather that it had never been seen, something like this, in multiple generations. So he wants to alert the people... Uh, of the uniqueness of what they were living through. You know, sometimes a society might be living through something unique, something particular, something that generations before them had not even experienced, and yet not be aware of that. Uh, People can be so dull because of their own sins and because of the blindness of Satan that they don't even realize the magnitude of what is in front of them. We are experiencing something like that right now. But that is what was happening to the Judeans. They didn't understand that what was in front of them was unique, that their, their parents nor the people before them had experienced something like this. But Joel is sent by God to help them see that. Now, in the rest of chapter 1, again, I I was just summarizing verses 1 through 7. In the rest of the chapter, he is going to give the people here instructions as to what they were to do in light of the situation. And he is also going to give them, finally, the divine interpretation for what was before them. He's going to tell them um, what is the point that God wanted to make by sending the locusts and all the other plagues that are taking place here, as we'll see. So when people suffer calamity, God, by His grace, when the people of God are suffering calamity or tribulation, God, by His grace, reveals to them why this is going on. But He does that through His divine word. And He also gives instructions as to what we are to do in light of what is going on. And we find again both the instructions and the interpretation with respect to the plague going on in Judah here. You see the instructions here in verses eight through fourteen, so I 'm just going to go ahead and read that that part of the text uh, or verse er, uh, verses eight through thirteen. Pardon me. It says here, "Well like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth, the grain offering." and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the Palm also and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Well, O ministers of the altar, come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And verse 14 says, Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord your God, or to the Lord. So again, here you find a set of instructions, two sets of instructions. Uh, In verses 8 through 12, he prescribes wailing and being ashamed. And then in verses fourteen or 13 and 14, he calls for public assemblies, seeking the Lord. So first you have seeking God in a personal way by wailing and feeling shame. And then you have a public seeking of God by consecrating a fast, calling and assembling and a, 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 a meeting together in the temple. So notice he begins here with a, with a general call for everyone to wail. The verb here, uh, whale, denotes a bitter cry. Joel even gives an an analogy... As to how we are to understand that he says well like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth the the term virgin here in the hebrew most often refers to one who has never had sexual relations uh with a man but the he the jews also used it for those who were recently married in this case uh Joel obviously means the latter because he talks about the bridegroom of this virgin's youth she is girded with sackcloth over over him so sackcloth um would have been a uh, coarse dark cloth made of uh, black goat's hair you would gird that with a knot around uh in the in the front around your waist and that was as you can tell even from the context the apparel of those who are mourning so clearly uh this is a young woman who has just lost the husband she just married. Uh, and of course, this kind of loss would bring out the deepest uh, and most bitter kind of cry from someone. And this is how Joel is asking the people of God to wail. He's saying, wail as if you were a virgin who just lost her recently uh, her recent husband, the the man she just married. Why? Well, he says here, because of the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The, the grain offerings, uh, those would have been offerings of fine flour or, or unleavened uh, bread and cakes and wafers and ears of grain uh, toasted. And they would have been sprinkled with salt and doused with olive oil. People would bring that to the temple, and they would offer them to God. That would have been on, on, the, on, the, on the altar that was in the forecourt, the outside altar that was accessible to the layman, and they would offer those things to God through the priests. The, what, what the priest would do is that he would put a portion of it on the altar to be consumed, and they would, then he would take some of it for himself. And uh, those were, again, those were the grain offerings, and they were always accompanied by drink offerings, uh, and that was typically wine. Again, some of it belonged to the priest, uh, and the rest was typically uh, poured on the altar alongside other offerings. But Joel's point here is that all of this had been cut off from the people because of the locusts, because the locusts had come and swept and taken all the food and all the wine, uh, that is the kind of destruction that they had brought about as we saw last time. So the land didn't even have enough for sacrifices. It destroyed even the temple. What was going on, the temple operations came to a halt because the devastation, the taking of the food was so bad. And of course, this uh, would have brought a lot of griefs, grief to the priests. It says the priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. Now, uh, they would have had two reasons really to be mourning. On the one hand, they had no work now. There's nothing to do. Nobody's offering sacrifices. On the other hand, you might remember, this is what they lived from. And so not, not only did they have no work, they also have no food. And so they are the ones that have plenty of reason to mourn but even joel goes on poetically to say even the land here is mourning he says in verse 10 the field is ruined the land mourns for the grain is ruined for the new dro- the new wine dries up fresh oil fails so notice the grain that is uh, part of the the, the food uh, or the grain offering and then you have the new wine which the land was producing that was the drink offering and then the fresh oil which would have been doused on the grain offering The the land cannot produce those things. And so there is a halt of the temple. So he is saying that even the land, as it were, is mourning over what is going on. Uh, So he goes on uh, talking, of course, about the priests and then poetically about the land. But then he moves over to another section of the population, and that is the farmers. Notice what he says in verses 11 and 12 about the farmers. He says, Be ashamed, O farmers! Well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Uh, The verb that is translated here as to be ashamed comes from a root... That means to pale. Uh, And you can also translate that as to be disappointed. The farmers also needed to kind of put their hands over their heads as to what was going on. Because just as the priests had run out of work, they too had run out of work and out of things to eat. The harvest had been destroyed. The locusts had wiped out the whole place. But with the locust plague, something else was going on. Uh, because you, if you read carefully, notice verse twelve that there seems also to be a drought associated with the coming of the locust. He says that the vines here in verse twelve that the vine dries up and the fig tree fails, so it doesn 't produce fruit and the pomegranate the palm also and the apple tree all the trees uh, all the trees of the field dry up, so there seems to have also been a plague while you have. These animals come in and eating everything, or these insects sort of wiping away everything. You also had a drought, a drought. Um, and so, because of that, it says that the joy uh, uh, the, the joy of, of men dries up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Now, at that, at that point, you might ask, well, why? If they were just losing material things, couldn't the prophet say, well... Rejoice in the Lord. I mean, you're going through all these trials, uh, and you're losing material things. Rejoice. But why is he saying, no, 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 don't do that. Go ahead and wail over it. Why? Well, you've got to think about it this way. God had made a covenant with Israel through Moses, and that covenant stated that for them to stay in the promised land, for them to continue to be a royal priest to the holy nation, for them to be in Canaan, they had to do all that God commanded. Now, here's the problem. Part of what God commanded was that they bring sacrifices and offerings into the temple. But there's no more offerings to bring to the temple. And so, it is uh, as though this plague takes away the ability to render god the obedience that was due him so uh, there's a sense in which this is having such an impact that now they can't even keep the, their their end of the covenant and uh, this is obviously what's going on in the future as we'll see these are these are harbingers of what is to come this is what's going to happen when the babylonian captivity comes they're going to be driven out they're going to be taken to a faraway land where there is no temple where they can't offer sacrifices at all and so they are not going to be able to obey in in that respect at all and so at this point god is basically uh telling them he's warning them if you keep going this way you will be driven out to where you are not going to be in the land of Canaan anymore to even fulfill your end of the obligations, your end of the covenant. So he is almost saying, you are getting close to ending this covenant entirely with me. And so um, they are to wail. But notice here that there is still hope. Um, On the one hand, obviously, he wouldn't have sent a prophet in the first place to warn them. uh, But he he asked them to humble themselves here. And that, that has this idea that there is hope. Verses 13 and 14, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn, a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Uh, notice the priests here, they were, they were instructed to take the lead here, right? Because they are to spearhead this humiliation, it comes obviously from the, from, the, from the religious leaders at first. They needed to do this, first of all, uh, by girding themselves with sackcloth. Of course, girding yourself in sackcloth was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of humiliation. This is what the king of Nineveh did when Jonah preached. And he put sackcloth on and he commanded that everybody else do the same. And so... This is, again, a sign of humiliation. But beyond that, the prophet Joel is instructing the priests here to engage in what we might call watchings, to spend nights in prayer, to deprive themselves of sleep, seeking the face of God. This is how serious this this situation was. And so they were to spearhead in all of this, spending nights in the temple praying, doing watchings, Uh, And after them came the whole population in general. And what were they to do? Well, he asked them to get together for special meetings. Joel asked them to consecrate a fast and proclaim a solemn assembly. The expression solemn assembly here, it means essentially a a holiday. It's a day in which men and women are not working anymore. Everybody's going to go to the temple and we are all going to pray we are going to seek the face of god we are going to humble ourselves before him they were to cry out to him they were to call for help but again there is hope in all of this because otherwise he wouldn't have sent the prophet instructing them and even here in verse 14 he still lets them know that he's still their god sure there is a sense in which they can't keep the ceremonial aspect of the law because there is no more food Uh, To bring uh, for their grain offerings, but He is still their God. Verse 14, Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord, your God, and cry out to the Lord. So there's hope here. Uh, God is going to listen if they humble themselves. If you come to Jesus Christ by faith, God never turns you down. If you seek His face, He never says no. God is always there for those who trust in Him for those who call upon Him in truth, and He is always there to save. But sometimes, God seems to pull back from us. He seems to forsake His people. He does that in a a temporary sense. He forsakes us. Uh, uh, He will let you go, but not forsake you entirely. So, for example, Christ hands over Peter temporarily to Satan so that he might sift Peter like wheat. So he allows even Peter to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But he doesn't let Peter go completely. Uh, No, in fact, he only allowed Peter to go what he went through, to to go through the sufferings that he went through so as to make him fit for greater service it was to get peter to see how wretched his own heart actually was so that peter might depend more on jesus christ sometimes god lets you fall into sins so that you might see how bad you actually are and so uh, god uh, when his hands when he hands his people over to evil it is for their own good it is to make you more dependent on God. It is to make you see your desperate need of Him. So, even as you look around uh, in, in, uh, in the state of our society, uh, and, and you see the judgment that this society is in, you, you can take heart uh, that God is using even all of these judgments and all of these external bad circumstances to make His people stronger. I mean, think about it. You're, you're watching even the end of the pragmatic movement. Uh, there is no, uh, Lord willing, soon, no more seeker sensitive. That will not exist. Uh, because the more the... You, you, you see this sort of trend. The more the homosexuals and the LGBTQs machine gets uh, up in arms and becomes more and more hostile, the more Christians come to realize that... The chasm is just too big. There's no way to make friends with the world. Uh, the, they realize that Christianity literally is for those who want to leave the world behind. Because to be a Christian is to be despised by the world. Uh, it's, it's, it's not for those who just want a, a therapeutic talk uh, on the weekend. Uh, it's not for people who just want to feel good about themselves. And so they go to church and they check, off, ch- check a few boxes. No, it, it is for those who want jesus christ himself and the fellowship of his suffering so the church in 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 all of this is being purified god is actually using the very thing that is bringing you so much grief when you look around and you see all the the plagues that are troubling our society even those things god is using to perfect his people he's using these uh, place that, that, that are unraveling the fabric of our society to make us seek His face. And He is doing something similar here to the citizens of Judah. Uh, the chaos around them ensues. It gets really bad. They think God has forsaken us. God is not with us anymore. And what he, God is doing is He's actually making them seek His face. Uh, now in verses uh, 15 and 20, Um, he's actually going to get specific as to what this invasion, the locust invasion, as to what it means. So we've gone over the instructions, seek my face, essentially, and now we are going to look at the interpretation of the plague. And that is again in verses 15 through 20. Let's let's go ahead and read um, that whole portion. Verse 15. Alas, for the day... For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under the cloths, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Uh, If you look look up at verse 15, notice it begins with the expression, Alas for the day. Alas for the day, the, the the word that is translated here as alas uh, would have been an expression used to get across the sense of sorrow and fear. Uh, the prophet is looking around at the devastation in front of him and he is crying out concerning a certain thing called the day of the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is... Near. Now the day of the Lord, uh, as we've said, that refers to a time of judgment for all ungodly powers. It's when God formally goes to war, as it were, when He pours out His wrath on a people or over the world. It's a time when His power and His justice are put On display for all to see this is why Joel says again alas for the day for the day of the Lord is near he's agonizing the fact that this is coming this is not something enjoyable he is troubled disturbed by the fact that this is coming so think about it the day of the Lord has not happened yet this is all in the future tense the day is near the day is coming or will come as destruction so again the day had not happened yet but the things that were in front of Joel the coming of the locusts and the drought uh, those were little previews harbingers of the coming day but if anything they showed they gave a demonstration a foretaste of how bad this was going to be Joel says in the rest of verse 15 and it will come as destruction from the Almighty the uh, the the phrase destruction from the Almighty is actually a play on words on the Hebrew destruction is shod Almighty is Shaddai so uh, the Almighty puts all of his might on display if we wanted to do a, a play on words on or in the English so no surprise there is a lack of of food and joy verse 16 says here food and gladness they have been cut off from the eyes of the people verse 17 says that the seeds were rotting even in the earth and out of the earth all the produce was gone verse uh, verse, verse 17 the seeds shrivel or they dry up or they become rotten because there is no water under the cloths or, or under their cloths uh, the storehouses are desolate the Barns are torn down for the gra- the grain is dried up. So there is no physical sustenance here, and and so you have a a, a lack of food. Uh, there is a, a a lack of joy. There is a, there is not even a prospect of a coming harvest because the the seed that were already planted are rotting inside of the ground. And then you have even the animal kingdom suffering. Uh, verse eighteen, it's it talks about groaning and wondering aimlessly uh and uh verse 19 talks about fire uh, in it, it so it introduces one more thing we we have we have the locusts we have uh, drought and now we have fire verse 19 to you O lord i cry for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field even the beasts of the field pen for you for the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now, to be sure, we could argue here that fire uh, actually uh, is the locust, that he's been uh, metaphorically uh, talking about the locusts uh, as fire coming, uh, comparing them to a flame that sort of licks up the whole place. But it actually seems more likely that what had happened was the drought comes through, and so everything is so dry that now you have brush fires breaking out. And so they had a lack of food, a lack of water, suffering among the animals, and brush fires everywhere. And this makes the prophet cry here himself. In verse 19, uh, he says, To you I cry. This verb here of crying is a uh, crying with, with force. It's uh, the same The same verb that we use for preaching. He cried out. So he is wanting people, not just himself, of course, he's just representing the people here. He wants people to engage their whole being, seeking the Lord. They needed to be saved. They needed to be realized that they had been unfaithful to the covenant with Yahweh. They needed to receive the benefits of yet another covenant, the new covenant, which gives the people in that covenant a new heart, a, 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 the spirit that causes Him to obey all of God's laws. And of course, that covenant is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, in the blood of His Son. Because of Jesus' blood poured out on the cross, now there are certain benefits that He gives to His people. And that is, He gives you a heart of flesh. He gives you a the spirit to lead you and to cause you to obey all that God commanded. But otherwise, the Israelites here, they were they were under a covenant of law and under a covenant of works, and they had failed miserably. They had not been able to keep the covenant, and they needed to cry out to God or else face the coming day of the Lord. So all of the things that they were seeing, the lack of food and water and suffering and fire, all of those things, again, are previews of a day, a coming day of the Lord. Now, to be sure, when we talk about the day of the Lord, there are multiple layers of fulfillment here in the Bible. Um, uh, for one, the book of Ezekiel talks about the the. the the Babylonian uh, captivity of Jerusalem in terms of the day of the Lord. So that is a historical fulfillment of the concept of the day of the Lord. But of course, there are still other fulfillments yet to come. Uh, There are two to be exact. The second one is the destruction that follows Christ's millennial kingdom. Uh, and precedes the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. The Apostle Peter refers to that as the day of the Lord. I want to show that to you in Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. And keep your finger in Joel and turn there to Second Peter 3.10. says it says there, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening The coming of the day of god because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat so notice before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth the present order is set to be dissolved by fire christ as we saw on sunday will reign on this earth for one thousand years after that satan is released And he brings the nations once again into a state of deception. They rebel against the rule of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he puts down that rebellion. And following that time, he destroys everything by fire. And creates new heavens and new earth. But the destruction at that point, that destruction, is referred to by Peter as the day of the Lord here. There is, of course, a second... Uh, eschatological day of the Lord. This is one. There is another one, and that consists in what Scripture refers to as the tribulation. Or, if you want to get more specific, as to the events within the tribulation leading right up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, you might say that there is a segment within the seven-year tribulation that is called the day of the Lord. And the Bible describes that uh, really as Uh, The most difficult and severe time in human history. Jeremiah says of it in Jeremiah chapter 30 verses 6 and 7. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Some people seem to deny that nowadays. Uh, Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? You want transgenderism? Here it is. Every man acting like a woman in childbirth. Why? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, he calls it. And uh, our Lord, on the other hand, He, he uh, said in Matthew twenty four twenty one: For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So again, you have this day of the Lord in the future that is a unique period of suffering on the earth. In Revelation chapter 6 through 19, you actually get more details as to what exactly leads up to that day of the Lord and what that day consists in. Uh, Revelation chapter 6 through 19, obviously, that's a a long uh, portion of scripture, uh, but In there, what you have is, uh, broadly speaking, the description of seven seals, or, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a number of seals, six seals, and seven trumpets. Uh, And so, what you have is the uh, first six seals, and that includes first the arrival of the Antichrist himself, then you have war, then you have famine, then you have death, then you have martyrdom, then you have earthquake. And now there's a seventh seal... Which actually unleashes a second wave of judgments, and they are, those judgments are called the seven trumpets. The first trumpet, in Revelation chapter eight verse nine, you can turn there with me. Revelation chapter eight verse, I'm sorry, uh, verse seven. You have seven seals and seven trumpets. Pardon me, and uh, the se- the seventh seal unleashes a set of seven trumpet judgments and the first of those is uh, an instance in which one third of the earth and the trees and the grass are burned up and we've seen the, the presence of fire already in the Joel passage uh, Revelation 8-7 says the first sounded and there came hell and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown in, on the earth and a third of the of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up then you have a second Trumpet, uh, and in it one third of the creature, of, of, of the sea creatures they die, and the ships are destroyed and That is in verses eight and nine. the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships. Were destroyed, uh, And then you have the third one, which is really the pollution of waters, and many dying from that. That is verses uh, 10 and 11. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Then the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters become Wormwood. And many men die from the waters because they were made bitter. Then you have a fourth trumpet. And that is a third of the stars above with the sun and the moon are darkened. And that is in verse 12. The fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck. So a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Then you have a fifth trumpet uh, and that is in chapter nine, verses one through eleven. I won't uh, read that, but it does speak of the opening of the bottomless pit, and there is a demonic horde that comes out and it afflicts men, and they uh, actually kill one third of humanity. Um, and so, uh, no, no, pardon me. That's on, that's the sixth. So, in in chapter nine, verses one through eleven, on the fifth uh, uh, judgment. You get the the tormenting of people, and then on the sixth you get the four uh, demons that are released, and they killed one third of humanity, and that's that's in verses thirteen through nineteen of Revelation nine. And then finally you have the seventh trumpet, and that one does not get sounded until chapter eleven and verses fifteen through eighteen, and that is a proclamation a preaching out loud of the reign of jesus christ chapter 11 verses 15 through 18 the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he will reign forever and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before god fell on their faces and worshiped god saying we give thanks O oh, Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because You have taken Your great power and have begun to reign, and the nations were enraged, and Your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward Your bond servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear Your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So here you have finally even the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom. That is a judgment against the world. So you have uh, in that portion, uh, again, the the seven seals and then seven trumpets. And then that is followed by six more judgments that are called the bold judgments. The bold judgments. And they come later in the tribulation period. And they come fairly quickly. It is possible that at this point, this is now the day of the Lord. Uh, or else it comes out at, at some point. But uh, in the bold judgments, what you get first of all is painful sores, and that is followed by the seas and the rivers. Uh, turning into blood and then the scor- the sun scorches people and then darkness and pain come over them and then the river euphrates dries up and it prepares a way for the kings of the east to come and make war against the holy city and finally a severe earthquake splits jerusalem into three parts and the expression again day of the lord refers either to those bold judgments or something somewhere there before all leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. And these are horrendous sufferings. And they have really two purposes in, in mind. There are two purposes for which God is accomplishing this on the earth. First of all, He is obviously uh, avenging His own name. He is uh, proclaiming Himself the one who triumphs over the wicked, even within time and space, not just in eternity, but He is also bringing about a temporal judgment of the nations of the world that have not subdued themselves Uh, and have not come under God's rule. Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6 says, The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgress laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are, are held guilty. So mankind, again, has revolted against God. Even in this world, God will exercise His wrath on all the nations that do not submit to His rule. And that is the first purpose of this day of the Lord. But beyond that, God is also using the day of the Lord, as we'll see later on in chapter 2, to bring Israel back to Him, to bring Israel to repentance. And again, we'll talk more about that when uh, we get to uh, the, the next chapter. But suffice it to say, at this point, back in the book of Joel, the prophet is telling them, if you repent... You don't have to go through this day. You don't have to go through it. Call upon the name of the Lord. This is why he is saying, here's a preview. Escape, flee the wrath to come by calling on the name of the Lord. He's saying, humble yourselves with fastings and prayers and watchings. Uh, He is saying, repent, come to the Lord and the judgment will be adverted. So if you think about it, this actually supports the idea that the church itself is not going to go through the tribulation period. Some would deny this. Some would say that the church is going to go through all the tribulations uh, that are coming upon this world. And that the rapture only takes place, uh, so Jesus immediately preceding the establishment of the millennial kingdom. But that is not the case if you think about it. Uh, because even in our text, the people of God, they are being told that if they turn from their sins, they would not have to face this day of Yahweh. And actually, Paul himself, he alludes to that principle in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. You might want to turn there with me. Second Thessalonians 2. This is a, a key passage. In this description, or, or uh, this is a, a, a key passage in the discussion of what, it, what is it that we are waiting for right now? Ask yourself what is coming next in the timeline of events? Correct, Correct. Because, because some would say no, what comes next is the coming of the Antichrist, the coming of the tribulation, the coming of sufferings on the, on the world. And then we will know that Jesus is coming back, right? So, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the Antichrist to come, or are you waiting for Jesus Christ to come and snatch his church? And then comes all these things. Amen. So, um, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through three. Notice Paul is uh, talking to the Thessalonians who were very much instructed in last things. You might remember the first Thessalonians has another passage on the rapture itself. But he says, Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. So somebody was was, uh, taking Paul's name and signing and saying that this was coming from him to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So notice, the Thessalonians at this point, they had been deceived into thinking that they were in the day of the Lord, right? That they were living through it already. And, uh, and so uh, they, they were disturbed by this, Notice, they were shaken in their composure. Uh, they were disturbed by the assumption, we are right now in the day of the Lord. Uh, now, if the day of the Lord was something that every Christian should be looking forward to, then why would anybody be disturbed, over, be disturbed over this? Why would they be disturbed at the thought that they were in it? Otherwise, they would be saying, Whoa, yay, Jesus is about to come. But they're not doing that. No, they're losing their composure. So uh, the only thing that explains they're being shaken is that they always had assumed that they were not going to go through the day of the Lord. They always had believed that the day of the Lord was for the enemies of God and not for the children of God. So Paul is telling them, look, for that to come, you have to have the apostasy and the revelation of of the antichrist. And of course, both of those things assume that Jesus has taken out of the way his church, that the rapture has occurred. So for those who are in Christ, those of us who have believed in him, all we have to look forward to the next event in the calendar of and the, of of the scriptures of prophecy, the things to come, what we have to look forward to is the rapture? Is Jesus coming to snatch his church and get his people out of the way? His coming to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. And of course, this is uh, great news and it is also motivating for us to say we want to preach the gospel. We want to preach it with more eagerness, knowing that the time is short and that there are no signs. Just any time, at any place, any moment, Jesus can and will come back. Hallelujah.